So this morning I'm reading from Genesis, uh, starting in chapter 37, in the second half of verse 17, and then I'm going to skip ahead to the very end, chapter 50. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And then skipping ahead to chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one of those stories that uh, if, you, if you've grown up in church, you're, you're really familiar with it. You've probably heard it uh, many times. You've seen the musical, right? What a weird story to make into a musical. And, and I think it's one of those things that because we become so familiar with it in a way, we might have become desensitized to it. Because it, it really is, when you think about it, a very, very dark, evil story. I mean, just, just pause for a minute and imagine, imagine what this is like for, for Jacob and for Joseph and for his brothers. I mean, right, they, they sell their brother into slavery. 
They were going to kill him. And do you notice the only reason they don't actually end up killing him is because Judah says, well, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. If we sell him, we get some money. And then in that great, he is our brother after all, how could we kill him? Let's just sell him off. Right? So they sell him into slavery. And as if that's not bad enough, they then fake his death and convince his father, not only that he's dead, but that he has died in a particularly horrible, brutal way. And there's no body to bury. And, and they let their father believe this for decades. They don't come clean until Joseph is standing right there in front of them and they have no option. Think about that but the pain and the suffering and the grief that they caused, not only to their father and to their brother, but that they then had to live with all their lives. I mean, it is, it is depraved and awful. It's like the height of family dysfunction. I mean, I fight with my sister a lot, but we're not this bad. And mind you, Joseph's not innocent in all this, right? He's... he's I'm a little brother, so I can say this, right? He's being a typical little brother and annoying the bejesus out of his older siblings, right? He has a dream where they're all bowing down to him, and he goes to his older brothers and said, hey, I had a dream where I was better than all of you, and you had to worship me. And then, of course, they sell him into slavery, because what else are you going to (laughs) do? I mean, come on. It is so messed up and so evil. And then there's this this weird little thing in the middle of the story. Right, where, where you, Joseph gets sold off into slavery, and then the story takes this detour with, with Judah and, and this woman, Tamar, who was supposed to be married to one of his sons. That son died. Marries her off to the other son. That son dies. And then he sends her off back to her family, which is the height of cruelty because now she is twice widowed with no children. She has no prospects. No one else will want to marry her. He's basically abandoning her to her fate. And then she tricks him into sleeping with her, which is already weird. Um, Right? And, and, and through her sort of devious planning, she, she gets pregnant. And the story never blames her for this, by the way. Judah's the one who's, who's messed up and is now reaping what he sowed. Right? And, and there's just, it's this weird thing where she has two children with him, and, and, and it's hard to figure out what's going on until you realize those two children are named specifically in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Whereas the, the two children who Joseph has they, they then become the heads of two of the tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, except they are like the two most irrelevant tribes in the entire Bible. Nothing ever happens with those tribes anywhere else in the story. I mean, they're just sort of there in the background, and then eventually they, they are part of the northern kingdom that, that splits off and then gets annihilated by the Assyrians. But it's, it's from Judah's descendants who King David will come and who Jesus will come from. And it's interesting because in this particular story, you have this little thing about Judah, and then right next to it is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So, so you have Judah, who is just being immoral in every possible way, and then there's Joseph, who is, who is refusing to touch a woman who is throwing herself at him because it would be immoral. So you have this incredible contrast between the morality of Judah and the morality of Joseph, but it's Judah who ends up being the ancestor of Jesus. God does things in ways we would not do them. <laughs> None of us would have picked Judah to be, to be the guy who is the ancestor of the kings, of the royal line of, of Israel, and then of Jesus, but, but that's who God picks. 
So, so Joseph is sold into slavery, and, and then through that episode with Potiphar's wife, he gets thrown into jail, and he's in jail for a few years. And, and of course, in jail, he has this moment where he's interpreting dreams again, which is what got him in trouble the last time. But this time it goes okay, right? He, he interprets these dreams for these two guys who work for Pharaoh. And, and uh, unfortunately, for one of them, the dream means he's going to die. But the other one is okay. And he says to that one, now listen, when you, when you are restored to your job and you're back in Pharaoh's court, tell him about me. I shouldn't be in here. So what does he do? He forgets to tell him about Joseph for two more years. <laughs> Until Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpreting. And then, then we see Joseph's rise to power where he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and says, you're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, so you better prepare. And Joseph rises to power. In, in the Egyptian government, which is already kind of a weird thing for one of Israel's ancestors. But then finally, finally, he's reunited with his family. And he sees his father again before he dies. And then after he dies, after Jacob dies, that is, Joseph's brothers come to him and they say this. They say, your father left these instructions before he died. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, it's worth pointing out that Jacob did not, in fact, say that. So they're lying to him again, right? <laughs> they're assuming that the only reason that Joseph hasn't had him killed yet is because Jacob was protecting him. So Jacob's gone, and they're afraid for their lives, and they, they decide to lie and say, actually, it was his dying wish that you forgive us for all the horrible things we've done to you, which is nonsense. But, but nonetheless, what does Jacob say to him? Joseph says, no, 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 don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God used it for good. Other translations read it as, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There are a, a handful of, of, of verses in the Bible that function as interpretive keys for the whole text, meaning if you understand them, if you remember them in other parts of the story as you read it, they help you to understand other things that happen because they are, they are telling the theme that runs through large sections of Scripture. This is one of them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's this profound statement of God's incredible sovereignty over the world. You can try and do evil things, and you can try and thwart God's plan. It will not work. In the very next book in Exodus, God says more or less the same thing about Pharaoh. God says, Pharaoh's going to try as hard as he can to stop you guys from leaving. It will not work. It'll happen over and over again. And there are even... These, the stories in the Bible where the Assyrians come and take out the northern kingdom and the Babylonians come and, and wipe out Judah and Jerusalem. And in both of those, the prophets of the Old Testament both say the same thing about, about these two kingdoms. They say, God will allow them to do this and then God will punish them for their evil, which is kind of a weird thing on the face of it. Why would God send them as his instrument of judgment and then punish them for it? But what's actually happening is God's not making them do it. They are doing the evil thing they were going to do anyway God is going to subvert it for his purposes and he will still bring justice. So you see it throughout the Old Testament. And then the ultimate example is Jesus on the cross. Because there's no doubt that the Pharisees and the Romans meant that execution for evil. 
And there's actually this sense in the Gospels that it's not just the Pharisees and the Romans who were trying to strike Jesus down here. There's this line he has in the Garden of Gethsemane as they're coming to arrest him. And, and he, he is talking about if he wanted to, he could call down a legion of angels to defend him. But he says, but, but this is your hour and the power of darkness is at hand. And, and there's this implication that actually, actually there is something much deeper than just the Romans and the Pharisees coming on. But, but in fact, it's almost as if all the forces of darkness, all the evil powers of the world have congregated into one place to confront God on the cross. And that right there in what they think should be their moment of triumph, God, God breaks the power of sin and evil. What they meant for evil, God used for good. It happens again in the, the history of the early church as they're being persecuted and they're being executed and they're being martyred and thrown into the Colosseums and fed to the wild animals. And, and what happens is it's like for every Christian that gets executed, 20 more pop up somewhere else. Because there is something about that example of people willing to die for their faith who have decided that actually death, death doesn't have meaning anymore because we know that it no longer holds power. That our God has conquered death and people heard that message and thought, I, I want some of that. And so what, what they meant for evil, God used for good. And even, even now, right, we, we see reports all the time of how church attendance in the West has just fallen off a cliff and the numbers are going down and down and down and the number of people who don't identify as being religious in any way is going up and up and up and up. And, you know, as someone who's been working in a church his entire adult life and grew up as a preacher's kid, I can tell you, really, like, at least half and maybe three-quarters of almost every church's official membership is are people who don't actually go to church. And of the people who have been going to church for the last 30, 40 years, a lot of them are people who just go to church and then live the rest of their lives as if nothing else is different. So what's really happening is not that, that Christianity is shrinking, it's that the people who were Christian and only name only are dropping the name. But the church is still there, and it's still strong. And the amazing thing is that every time in history that there has been a gulf widening between the church and the culture around it, and every time in history that the culture has turned its back on, on the gospel, the church has thrived and grown explosively. In fact, by the way, because we're Methodists, you should know that's exactly what happened when John Wesley started Methodism. It's the same kind of scenario. And this movement took off and spread like wildfire. God cannot be stopped. See, we've seen the first part of his plan unfold in Scripture, all culminating with Jesus on the cross and on the day of his resurrection where he's broken the power of sin and death and then he promises that one day he's going to come back and finish the job and bring his kingdom in, its, in all its fullness and all its glory and it can't be stopped. Although there are people who will try, it cannot be stopped and there is a lot of hope in that message. There's a lot of hope in that idea that, that no matter what people do, no matter what evil might come, God can take those actions of human evil and subvert them to his glory. That there is no stopping God. But I've got to admit, there's a part of that that makes me a little nervous too. Uh, Corey Tinboom was a, a young girl when the Nazis rose to power, her family were devout Christians living in Europe. And because they were devout Christians, because of their faith, 
they began to smuggle Jews out of the country, hiding them in their house as one of the stops along the way to get them out until one of their neighbors turned them into the authorities and her entire family was sent to concentration camps. And Corey was the only survivor. And, and she has all kinds of incredible stories about the things that happened both during and after. There's one story in particular where she's describing how she and her, her sister were in the same camp in the same bunkhouse. And they would start leading prayer meetings and Bible studies with the other girls they were bunking with until the guards would come in and bust them up and, and refuse to allow them to do that. Until they all got fleas. And when they got fleas, the guards wouldn't come anywhere near them. So she says, soon we were thanking God for the fleas. Because now we can pray and we can, we can have our Bible studies in, in peace and it won't matter. She tells a story of how decades later she's giving a talk somewhere in Germany and, and a man walks up to her who is one of the former guards at her camp and comes up to tell her that he's found faith in Jesus and asks for her forgiveness. It's a beautiful story. Now it's very clear that the neighbor who turned her in was trying to do something evil. Was trying to, to stop God's work in that situation. Was trying to, to snuff out the light of Christ. And it's very clear that while they were in that camp, they brought joy and peace and hope to people who desperately needed it. So all her neighbor really succeeded in doing was taking the light of Christ and throwing it far into the darkness where it was needed most. But they were still in a concentration camp and all but one of them died. And I'm willing to bet that Joseph wasn't exactly thrilled during his years of slavery and imprisonment. So there's hope in this message that, that evil cannot stop our God. He can take all these acts of human evil and subvert them to his purposes, and he's, he will actually carry out his plan no matter what. But there is also this sense that sometimes God's people will be called upon to do very difficult things and sometimes, sometimes they will be put in the midst of that darkness and expected to shine the light of Christ right then and there. And it's going to feel at times like they've been abandoned because they are just surrounded by so much evil and pain and suffering. Now the reality is for you and me, we, we won't be sold into slavery. Um, our lives are not in danger. Now, that's not true for Christians everywhere. There are today in the world places where being a Christian is a dissonance. But for us, that's not the case. Thanks be to God, we live in a place where we're generally pretty safe. But it doesn't mean we won't face difficulty, and it doesn't mean that God will not allow us to experience a lot of difficulty and pain and suffering if it serves his good purposes. And this is the challenging part of being a Christian is that it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And that in point of fact, God does not at any point say, it's okay, if you're one of my followers, I'll make your life great. Rather, he says just the opposite. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you realize, by the way, when he tells his disciples that he hasn't been crucified, he hasn't had to carry his own cross yet, he's not even referencing himself. He's pointing to all the other people who already have to carry their cross to their place of execution. He's not even talking about himself yet. He's just saying, you're going to have to carry a heavy burden if you're going to follow me. 
because there will be times when God may ask you to make a big sacrifice. Now again, thanks be to God for us. We don't have to sacrifice our lives. We just don't live in a place where that's going to happen. But we may be called to make hard choices. And we may be called to, to be the light of Christ in a difficult situation. And there may be times when we sit there and wonder, okay, why exactly is God allowing this to happen? What others mean for evil, God will use for good. And there may simply be times in our lives when we have to trust that whatever is going on, whatever situation we find ourselves in, or whatever we see happening to people we love, we may simply have to trust that no matter what's going on, God will find a way to use this for good. And I want to be very clear. This doesn't mean that God causes evil things to happen. That's not the story. The story is that, that humans do evil things. Humans do bad things. Humans try to stand in God's way and it always fails. God cannot be stopped. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.